parenting. I have to tell you, when I saw that we were going to talk about parenting this week, I got a little bit uneasy. I got uneasy for two reasons. One is this. Although I am a parent of three children and my wife and I raised them to adulthood, I can tell you that we did not have a carefully thought out, well-formulated 10-step program for how to raise good kids. We just didn't think that way. Our parenting was much more instinctive. It was much more moment by moment. And though I'd like to say I have some great wisdom to offer you on how to be a parent, I really don't. Because my wife and I really had only two core values that we wanted to pass on, or two bedrock principles, and they were these. We always wanted to make sure that our kids knew we loved them. We always wanted to make sure that when we said no, they knew we meant it. And that's all we knew. That's what we tried to do. And I had two goals for my kids. My wife did not share both these goals, however. My goals were these. I wanted to make sure my kids loved the Cardinals, and I wanted to make sure that they loved Jesus. My wife bought into one of those and not the other. And my daughter does not, could not care less about baseball, so I failed miserably. The other thing that makes me nervous about this sermon topic is this. Yes, we raised three kids, but we raised three kids in a very specific context. And the context in which we raised our children is not the context in which many of you are raising your children, have raised your children. So I really can't fully identify with what your experience has been. For instance, I was never a single dad. I don't know what it's like to be a single parent raising your child. I don't know what it's like to have joint custody with with an ex-spouse. I don't know what that experience is like and the difficulties those two situations create. I never lost my job when we were raising our kids, so I never knew what it was like to wonder if we're going to be able to pay the bills and put food on the table for our kids. None of our kids ever had a life-threatening or chronic illness, so we didn't, don't know what that's like to live with that constant fear, nor did my wife or I ever suffer from a chronic or life-threatening illness while we were raising our kids, so I, I, I don't know what it's like for those of you who are experiencing that. In other words, we have a very limited understanding of what it means to be a parent, so I don't have much to say. But the beautiful thing is that you didn't come today to hear what I think about parenting. You came to hear what the Word of God says about parenting. And the really good news about that is that what today's text will show us is that what God is telling us as parents, our primary primary responsibility is, is very clear. It's very clear. A lot of times we read the word of God, we kind of say, I'm not sure what that means. I'm not sure how to parse that, but this is very clear. So I want to read today's text, which is Ephesians 6, 1 to 4. This is a reading of God's holy and perfect word. Children. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We're really only going to talk about the last sentence of those four verses, the last of those four verses. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The first three are really addressed to children. So if you are in that stage of your life, you're off the hook today. But parents, we're not, because God gives us very clear instructions for what we're to do. I want to say before I begin that some of what I'm going to say today comes from Paul David Tripp's book, Parenting Gospel Principles That Can Change Your Family, which is a book I would highly recommend to those of you who are in the midst of raising your kids. So here's today's sermon in a sentence. Parenting is not about what we want for our children or from our children, but about what God in grace plans to do through us in our children. 
Let me open in prayer, and then we'll begin. Father, you give us a great responsibility and a great opportunity to represent the kingdom of God to our kids. It's difficult. It's a long, slow, sometimes painful process, but I pray that we would be wise in following the lead that you give us in Ephesians 6, verse 4, that we may indeed be the ones who point our children to the beautiful truth that you love them more than they can even begin to imagine. And we ask these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. Now we're going to really break this sermon into two parts. The first part, talking about what it means to provoke your children to anger, and then the second half, what it means to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So first, provoking our children to anger. How do we do that? There's a lot of ways we can do it. And some of them are flat-out evil. We can abandon our kids, for instance, or abuse our children. But I want to talk instead of those kinds of things. I want to talk about the kinds of things that very good parents do. Parents who love their kids, who are committed to their kids' welfare, who are heavily invested in them. Because there's something that a lot of us do that I have done to some degree, and that is this. We seek to find our identity through our children. Now, we're supposed to find our identity in Christ if we are children of God. We're called to find our sense of purpose and meaning and fulfillment in him. And yet somehow we say to our kids, I want you to be my personal savior. I want to find a sense of wholeness and ego fulfillment in you and in your actions and what you do, which puts an enormous burden on them and treats them very, very unfairly. We want to bask in their reflected glory. We want to hold them up as our personal trophies. So people will say, wow, you've done a great job with your kids. We tend to make fun of the tiger mom syndrome, the mother who says to her her children, I'm going to push you into different areas. You're going to be great at all of them because you're going to bring honor to the family. We all can identify with the tiger mom to some degree because I think a little bit of tiger mom lives in all of us. We've all faced that temptation. We all are tempted to make parenting a, a, a competitive activity. We do that, don't we? We compare our kids to other people's kids. That's a danger of parenting. And it's a crushing burden for our kids to live with the expectations we place upon them, to be the center of our ego fulfillment. And we see it all the time. Let me give you a few examples. We see it in athletics very clearly. Usually a dad, maybe a mom, a frustrated jock who didn't achieve the the dreams of athletic glory that he or she had. And so we say to our child, our son or our daughter, you're going to be great at this. You're going to get the Division I scholarship. You're going to make the Olympic team. You're going to set the state record in whatever it might be. You're the one. And so we push them. Now, there's nothing wrong. I want to quickly add that there's nothing wrong with helping our kids find their passions. We should do that. And if our child has a passion to play basketball or run track or play soccer or hockey or whatever it is, that's fine. I'm not saying, oh, you're a bad parent if your kids are involved in that. Not at all. What I am saying is when it's about the parent's ego and not the child's desire, then there's a problem. The parent who sits in the stands and yells at the referees because the referee or the umpire is taking away their child's opportunity to excel, or the parent who goes to the coach and says to him or to her, my kid needs to play more, needs to shoot more, needs to have more at-bats, needs to be put in in the first relay. Whatever it is we do, when that's driven by our desire to have our kid be the one who excels so that we can feel good about it, there's a problem. We see it in academics, too. I mean, think about the news events that just happened this week in California. 
the parents who said, I'm going to bribe my child's way into a prestigious university. Now, in one case, the daughter of one of those, one of the people involved in this scandal said on a YouTube post, I don't care about school. I don't want to go to class. I want to go to school so I can go to the parties and so I can go to the big games. Her education did not mean anything to her, but it meant so much to her parents that were willing to spend tens of thousands of dollars to get her into a prestigious university. Why is that? Is that for the child's welfare? Is that for the parent's ego? The parent wants to be able to put the Yale or Harvard or Stanford window sticker on their car so people say, wow, you got your kid into that school. Your kid must be great. You must be a great parent. There's so much of what we do that is about us in parenting and not at all about our child. And that manifests itself, too, in the way we berate our child when they don't measure up the expectation we raise for them. They don't get the grades. They don't score enough points. They don't get enough ice time, playing time. Their time in the 50 or the 100 is not fast enough. Whatever it is, we're all over our children because they are not living up to our ego expectations. The problem is that many of us turn parenting into a transaction. The message is, if you don't measure up, I'm not really going to love you. Now, that seems kind of bald-faced, but I think we do it. Let me give you an example. Grace Hall Hemingway was was a mother of Ernest Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway, of course, the great American writer of the 20th century, and her dream for her son was that he be a a great man of God. If you know anything at all about Hemingway, that did not happen. (laughs) He was married four times. He was an alcoholic. He ultimately committed suicide. The man struggled all his life. But that was her dream for her son. The Hemingways were a devoutly religious family. They lived for a period of time across the street from the church they attended. They lived in Oak Park, Illinois. It's a suburban family, a town not unlike Kirkwood. She was the organist in the church. Her husband was an elder. They were absolutely committed to the work of the church. When Hemingway graduated from high school, he went off to Kansas City for a brief period of time. Then when the United States entered the First World War, he enlisted in the Army and was sent to the Italian front as an ambulance driver. He worked not for the U.S. Army, but for the Italian Army. And his job was to transport wounded men and boys from the front lines back to the field hospital. Now, think what it's like for a suburban 19-year-old kid who's never seen anything like this to suddenly pick up these men who are in agony and transport them back to the field hospital. He saw things that no one should ever have to see. That was traumatic enough, but things got worse in July of 1918 when he was caught between the Italian and Austrian lines and his his knee was shattered by machine gun bullets from an Austrian machine gun. And then as he tried to get back to the Italian lines, he was hit by shrapnel from an Austrian artillery shell. He was badly, badly wounded. He He convalesced for several months in a hospital in Italy, and then he was sent home to Oak Park to recuperate in his parents' home. Now, Hemingway was shattered by that experience. He wasn't just physically broken. He was emotionally broken. He was spiritually broken as well. Today, we would say he suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. And he manifested that through heavy drinking and by chasing girls. His mother didn't like that at all. She was disgusted by his lifestyle, and she sent him a letter, which I think very clearly communicates the idea that she saw her role as a parent as a transaction. Here's what she wrote to her son. Every mother's life is like a bank. 
Every child that is born to her enters the world with a large and prosperous bank account, seemingly inexhaustible. The child draws and draws upon this account, making no deposits during the early years. Then up to adolescence, while the bank is heavily drawn upon, there are a few deposits of pennies in the ways of some service willingly done, some thoughtfulness and thank yous. With manhood, while the bank goes on handing out love and sympathy, the account needs some deposits, some good-sized ones in the ways of gratitude and appreciation, interest in mother's ideas and affairs, a desire to favor any of mother's peculiar prejudices, or no account to outrage her ideas. And then she drops the bombshell. This is the message she wants her son to hear. Unless you, earnest, come to yourself, cease your lazy loafing, and and pleasure-seeking. Stop trading on your handsome face and neglecting your duties to God and your Savior, Jesus Christ. There is nothing before you but bankruptcy. You have overdrawn. Now, those are the words of transaction. Those are the words that will provoke a child to anger. Hemingway was deeply, deeply wounded by his mother's words. There was no sympathy on her part for the emotional, spiritual, physical trauma that he was going through. There was no sense that her son needed love and compassion and support rather than judgment, but there it is. Her message to her son was very clear. You owe me. You owe me. And we read those words and we think, well, that's terrible. And we say, I'd never do a thing like that. I'd never say anything like that to my child, and yet I think we do. I think I have done so. And I want to give you some examples. Six statements that I don't know that I said every one of them, but I've said some of these to my own children. Words like this, after all I've done for you, how could you do this to me? I never thought a daughter of mine would ever. If it's the last thing I do, you'll, when I was your age, I would never. I can't believe you would ever think of doing such a thing. Now, those are the words of transaction. Those are the words of obligation. My son, my daughter, you owe me something, and this behavior is unacceptable. Now, of course, we should discipline. Of course, we should hold our children accountable. We need to do that. But when we say things like this, what we're saying is that your behavior is unthinkable. But is it? I mean, by definition, our children are immature. By, children, by, by definition, our children are sinners. And we are too. I mean, couldn't God say to me, couldn't God say to you, after all I've done for you, how could you do this to me? I never thought a daughter or son of mine would ever. If it's the last thing I do, you'll. When I was your age, I would never have. I can't believe you'd ever think of doing such a thing. I mean, God has every reason to throw up his hands in frustration at the way I live my life and say, I can't believe after all these years, you still are so blind. Your life is still so out of touch with who I want you to be. And yet he loves us. He loves us. He forgives us. He comes to us graciously time and time again. And here's the other thing. Are our children doing anything that we didn't do when we were kids? Didn't you do the stuff the broccoli and the napkin trick when you were a kid because you didn't want to eat it? Did you ever lie to your parents? Did you ever talk back to your parents? Did you ever cheat in school? Did you ever get a bad grade in school? Did you ever come in late from curfew? Did you ever get drunk when you were in high school? Did you ever do any of the same kinds of things that our kids do that drive us crazy? We did them. We drove our, our parents crazy when we were young, and yet somehow we think our, our children should be different. We were a mess when we were young, and sometimes our kids are a mess too. And that, the fact they're a mess is a reflection not just of the behavior that we find offensive, but it's a reflection of the brokenness that is in their hearts. And that brings us to the second point. 
In the second half of verse 4, Paul charges parents to bring up their children in the instruction of the Lord. Now, let's talk education for a minute. I've been a teacher for years and years and years. And one of the things we talk about in education is the idea of backward design. What that means is this. When I, when I sit down or a teacher sits down to, to plan a course, to plan a unit within a course, what you do is you ask three questions. What do I want my students to know? What do I want my students to be able to do? And who do I want my students to be at the end of this course? And those are the questions we ask. And so we design the entire course or the entire unit around those three questions so that everything we do in that unit is geared toward, or course is geared toward, the, the end we've, we've articulated. And I think a lot of us forget the idea of backward design when it comes to parenting. We're so caught up in the moment-by-moment crises of the day that our parent, parenting is reactive and not intentional. So the question is, really, the fundamental question is, not what do we want our students to know, although that matters, and what do we want them to be able to do, although that matters. But the real question is, who do we want our children to be? Do we ask ourselves that question? And do we think about parenting in that way? And if we do, does that direct the way we make decisions and the way we, tr- we tr- treat our children? And the beautiful thing is that God makes it very clear what he wants our role to be in raising kids. This is what he says in Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. That's our mission statement. That's our goal. That's what we should do. And that seems pretty clear. We're to be God's ambassadors on his behalf to our children, reminding them again and again and again of the enormity of the fact that he loves them more than they can ever begin to imagine, and that his love is forever, and that his love is unconditional. But here's the problem. Most of us have a much more limited view of what our role as a parent is. We say our role as a parent is simply to do this. We want our kids to be decent human beings. We want our kids to get decent grades, to get into a decent school, to get a decent education, to get a decent job, to live a decent life, and do the whole thing with the next generation. And to a degree, that's right. We should do those things. There's nothing wrong with any of that as far as it goes. But if that's how we define a role as parents, then we will see our primary job as as basically putting parameters around our children's behavior. We want to make sure, again, they're decent human beings. So we will become lawgivers and police officers and judge, jury, and executioner. And that's not enough. 2005, Notre Dame University professor Christian Smith wrote a famous article in which he coined the phrase moralistic therapeutic deism to describe how most Christian parents view the parenting process. Tom Warner years ago talked about this here from the pulpit at Green Tree. This is really a a groundbreaking study because it really points to an essential problem in the way we view our role as parents. He said that most Christian parents want five things from church for their kids. They want them to know these five things. Number one, Christian parents want their kids to know that a God exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. Christian parents want their kids to know that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. 
Christian parents want their kids to know that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, Christian parents want them to know that God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he is needed to resolve a problem. And number five, Christian parents want their kids to know that good people go to heaven when they die. Now, there's some decent ideas in there. It's not that they're all wrong, but that's a very limited view of what a Christian parent ought to aspire to for his or her child. And there's some things in there that arguably really are wrong. I mean, what we're really saying in each of those five principles is what we want out of church for our kids is some glob of morality to help them to be better people. And yes, we do, and I did when our kids were being raised, but that's not the end of the discussion. There's a lot more to it than that. We need to understand, again, that our job as a parent is not just to address behavior, but to address the condition of their heart. So a temper tantrum in the candy aisle at Snooks when the child wants M&Ms and we say no, it's not just about limiting their behavior, but it's recognizing that what's going on there is there's a core heart of selfishness in our child that I need to address as a parent. And when my teenager violates curfew, I need to understand that what's really going on is not just my child wants to sneak out and be with their boyfriend or girlfriend, but there's, this is a struggle for autonomy. My child is saying, I want to make my own decisions. I want to be independent. I don't want to have to answer to anybody. And we need to recognize that's true. But here's the problem. I can't change the condition of anybody's heart. I can't do that. I have no power to do that. It's a lot easier to be a lawgiver than it is to do that because changing the condition of heart is impossible. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And if my role as a parent is just to be a lawgiver, what that really says is that Jesus didn't even need to come. I mean, Jesus came precisely because we have no ability to change a person's heart, but he does. That's what the cross is about. That's what his sacrifice is about. That's what the Holy Spirit's about. Coming into our lives and saying, I can, make you a new crea- I can make you a new creation. I can give you a new heart. A heart that's directed to me. And that's what God is calling us to be. Point our kids to the reality of that fact that God loves them more than they can know. That's what we're called to do. So how do we do that? Well, one of the ways we can do it is this. Every day we go outside, we see evidence of God's creation, don't we? In the last few weeks, we've had a snowstorm and a windstorm and a thunderstorm. In a few more weeks, we're going to see the world explode with new life. Do we say to our kids, when those things happen, do we say this, oh, it's snowing. I got to go out and shovel the walk. Oh, man, it's, it's raining. I hope the basement doesn't flood. Now, we may say those things and we may think those things, but we also say, do you see the power of God at work? Look at the beauty of this snowstorm. Look, listen to the majesty of that thunder. Do we say those things to our kids? Do we walk through the world with an eye toward pointing our kids to the power and the wonder and goodness of God all around them? Most kids like to go to the zoo. My kids did not like to go to the zoo when they were kids because they didn't like what happened every time we went. Every time we'd go to the zoo, we'd come to an animal enclosure, and I would say the same thing. I would say, how did God ever think of that? How did God come up with that animal? I mean, I, would, I might have come up with a dog, and I like dogs. They're cute. We like that. I can get dogs. I might have come up with that. I might have come up with a bear or a lion, but I never in a million years would have thought of a flamingo. Wouldn't have occurred to me. A prairie dog, no chance. A lemur. I don't even know what a lemur is. I never would have thought of it. I mean, but God did those things. God did those things, and do we point our kids to the grandeur of all that God has given us, or do we ignore it? 
Here's another thing we can do. Do we tell our kids the stories of what God has done? how he's made provisions for his people throughout many, many, many centuries. Do they know the stories of Abraham and Moses, of Ruth, of Esther, Mary, David, Daniel, Paul, Peter? Do they know those stories? Do we sit down with our kids and do we read Bible stories to them? Do we pray with them when they go to bed? Do we pray with them when we sit down when we say grace at meals? Do we make sure they're in church on Sunday morning or Sunday school on Sunday morning? Do we do that with our kids or do we just fit it in if we have time? Church isn't really a priority. Other things are more important than that because we've got a busy schedule. Do we, do we make teaching our kids the things of God a priority? But even more than that, that's not enough because our kids are not just listening to us or watching us. And they're going to learn a lot more from the way we live our lives and what we say to them about our lives. Do we make the things of God a priority? Do they see, see us making going to church a priority? reading God's word a priority, praying a priority. More than that, they see us loving our neighbors well, loving them well, loving our spouse well. They see us using our time to serve other people in any way. Or is it all about us? How do we live our lives? Our kids are watching. And are we, are, are, would they say of us that I see little evidence that my father or my mother really cares about what they say they care about? Is there a, is there a disjointed misconnection there? Or is it real? God has placed our kids in our lives to be his ambassadors. We, can't, we can affect their behavior. We can't change their condition. Do we point them again and again to the fact that God is there and loves them? I love the parable of the lost sheep in Luke 15. I think it's really instructive on many levels. This is what it says. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. There's three things I think we can learn from that lesson. One is this. Sheep need a shepherd. Sheep need somebody who will point them to that which will help them to flourish. Second thing we learn is that sheep are prone to wander. Left their own devices, sheep are going to get into trouble. They're going to go into areas they should not that may threaten their lives. Third thing is that sheep aren't able to rescue themselves. They need somebody outside themselves who can save them when they're lost. Now, we have a part to play in that. We need to point our kids to the good things, the things that will help them to flourish. We need to point them to the things of God. We need to remind them of his love. We have a part to play in that. We also need to help them to avoid the things that can destroy them. We need to to steer them away from those things, whether they're a small child or a teenager or beyond, which can destroy their lives. We have a part to play in that. We also need to come alongside them when they fail, because they will fail. And we know they'll fail because we fail. They're going to get into trouble. They're going to make bad choices. They're going to do things they should not do. And what do we do in the face of that reality? Do we beat them up for it, metaphorically, or maybe even literally? Or do we come alongside them with a sense of compassion, with discipline perhaps, yes, if that's necessary, but also the sense of, okay, we need to help you work through this. And we know we need to do that because we have a much better shepherd than ourselves. We have the great shepherd, the good shepherd who loves us and who loves our kids more than we do. His invest in them is greater even than ours. And he, too, 
wants to point them to what is good. He wants to rescue them when they are in trouble. He wants to steer them away from temptation. And he has the ability to change the condition of their hearts in a way we do not. And so, our job is to point to him and pray the power of the Holy Spirit will help our children become the new creations which only he can do. We'd all like to have our Ward Cleaver moments. For those of you who are too young to know, Ward Cleaver was a father on the TV show, Leave it to Beaver. If you ever watched that show, and I know many of you in here did, what happened every single week is either, either Wally or the Beaver or both would get in some kind of trouble, and Ward would come in at the very end and would give them wise advice that would help them to learn some great lesson that would help them to be better, at least until the next week, and they'd do it all over again. Every show was about the same thing. And I would like to think, as a parent, that I had Ward Cleaver moments with my own kids, that I sat down and gave them sage advice and helped them to work through the difficulties of childhood and adolescence and even young adulthood, but I know I didn't. I mean, I have three kids. If the prime parenting years are zero to 22, that gave me 66 years of opportunities to have Ward Cleaver conversations with my kids, and I can't think of any that I ever had with them. Oh, there might have been some. I hope there were some. I hope if my kids were here, they'd say, yeah, Dad, remember the time? Maybe that happened. But most apparent is not about that. It's about the drip, 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 steady, day by day, moment by moment, counsel, wisdom, support, love, which helps our kids become the people that we pray they'll become. And we know that's true because think about the way God deals with us. We struggle with all kinds of sins, don't we? Anger greed, impatience, addiction, whatever it might be. And very rarely does God wave a magic wand and it's gone just like that. It doesn't happen that way. It it does occasionally. But usually it's three steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, three steps back, year by year by year. We grow, we learn, and God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, helps them become more in tune with who he's created us to be. That's because though the power of sin has been broken in our lives, the presence of sin remains. And we are still a work in progress, as are our children. So there's, not gonna, there's gonna be very few great moments of breakthrough. It's gonna be a long, slow, frustrating, disappointing, heartbreaking process. Because parenting is about the blind leading the blind. That's the truth, isn't it? We're sinners. But the principle of backward design says we always know where we're headed. We're always pointing our kids to the ultimate truth that God loves them. And our great hope for them is not just they get into an Ivy League school, but that they understand the enormity of the implications of the fact that God loves them. That's what we're here to do. We're called to be ambassadors to our kids. We're called to represent his interests to them. Point them to that above all things. So sure, get good grades. Sure, be good at sports. Sure, be good at music. All those things matter. But the ultimate thing that matters is, do our kids love Jesus? The key text, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's the, there are marching orders. God says it very clearly. That's not hard to understand. So, parenting is not about what we want for our children or from our children, but about what, but about what God in grace plans to do through us in our children. He gives us an opportunity to be involved in something that lasts for eternity. So little of what we do does. I mean, so much of what we do is mundane, routine, but this is not. And this is, the beautiful thing about this is we are doing this for the people we love the most in the whole world. What a privilege that is. And what a gift to be involved in that process. Let's close in prayer. 
Father, we are very grateful that you love us. We are very grateful that you give us an opportunity to invest in eternity in a way that is unimaginable. We pray for the kids of these families in this room, that they would learn to love you. Every one of us has made so many mistakes, so many things we regret we said or didn't say, so many things we did or didn't do. I failed so many times as a parent, and every parent in here knows that's true in their own life. But Lord, you are a sovereign God who loves our kids so much, and I thank you for that. And I pray you would help us to be wise in parenting our children, that they may be the children of God that you created them to be. In Christ's holy name, amen.